Hi, it's Arjun with the video follow-up to last week's Super Spike post, What Would Lee Raymond Do? And for those of you that don't know or came after uh, Mr. Raymond's tenure, he was a force like none other. And what was so impressive is Exxon at a time when oil was going nowhere in the 1990s was a dominant S&P 500 company and kept pace despite oil being range-bound $15 to $20 a barrel. And then when the Super Spike era uh, started in the 2000s, Exxon took off like a rocket ship. Now, some of you may remember uh, or be more familiar with the more recent history. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the days Exxon was dominant in no small part due to its unbelievable and unique CEO, Lee Raymond. This is not a video or a series about Lee, the personality. It is about the principles, the leadership characteristics, and what he both embodied and push forward to make Exxon the kind of S&P leadership stock that I think should be the aspiration for especially today's larger traditional energy companies. It's entirely possible. Uh, it is a question of core assets. It's a question of going towards the future low-cost areas. It's not about appeasement. Uh, it is about looking forward. And uh, got a video here to follow, and I'll see you at the end. So what would Lee Raymond do in this messy energy transition era? I think first point is the purpose of this video and uh, the note I wrote last week is really to talk about applying Lee Raymond's leadership principles, not necessarily his personal views on climate. I know there's some controversy there. I support Mr. Raymond. I'm a huge fan of his. He's definitely entitled to his own opinion. Some people push back on that. It's not about that. It's about understanding what made Exxon so dominant during his tenure, both in that 1990s environment where commodity prices were lackluster and it kept pace with the S&P, and then during the super spike era, Super Bowl market, Exxon crushed the S&P. This is the type of S&P leadership I think uh, all large companies, certainly in the energy sector, should aspire to, and he did it by investing and focusing on low-cost projects that scaled, that drove superior returns on capital, free cash flow, and ultimately gave cash back to investors. It is the lessons from his leadership uh, that is the purpose of this video and uh, post series. It's not about looking backwards, and it's one of the things I've always been impressed with. His line was always, we're trying to invest in projects that are at the low end of the future cost curve, not Yesterday's cost curve, not today's cost curve. It's not about looking backwards. It's about looking forwards. And as it relates to this energy transition era, which that concept didn't exist uh, 20, 30 years ago when Mr. Raymond was CEO, but I'm pretty confident, uh, and I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say he would never have been about appeasement, about trying to make people feel better uh, to either check some ESG boxes or because they were getting political pressure or what have you. And I'll say this respectfully, and, I, and certainly my own views could ultimately turn out to be not true or, or incorrect. But when I see a lot of what some of the European CEOs are doing, I believe they believe a lot of what they're saying, but some of it feels like appeasement. And I think I appreciated with Lee Raymond, it was about doing analysis, about doing the numbers, um, and, and, and really trying to come up with what is going to make the company I'm the CEO of a great S&P leader. And it's, it's not about appeasing people or making them feel good just to make them feel good. Um, nor is it about defiance either. 
Um, and while Lee Raymond had certainly had a combative public persona, um, this isn't about defiance just for the sake of defiance. It is about trying to figure out where are the economics, what's going to work, what's going to scale, what's going to generate superior returns, how can you be an S&P leader? So for any traditional oil company, it's going to start with your core assets. And this is a huge part of both gaining success, but also staying successful. It is the foundation um, for success, long-lived, low-cost, free cash generative. And you see this across different energy sectors. It could be the drug company that created a life-saving drug that's on patent for 20 years and results in superior profitability. We see that obviously with some of the leading tech companies. This is being recorded on some combination of a MacBook Pro and an iPhone. Uh, clearly a huge high return assets for, in this case, Apple. And for an oil company, it's going to be uh, obviously the oil and gas fields you invest in. Today, we would cite Permian, Canada's oil sands, Marcellus Gas, and Qatar LNG is certainly four of my favorite long-lived, low-cost core assets. There are probably other examples I'm forgetting. And as it relates to energy transition, I think, again, to be an S&P leader, to have superior returns, it's not just that you own these assets, it's that you figure out ways to make what may be the two tier two or tier three acreage within these areas more economic. It might be about bolt-on acquisitions or even larger scale M&A. How do you consolidate your positions? How do you continue to have large, long-lived, low-cost assets? And Exxon was great at this, whether it was the Groningen field, which is now at a different point of controversy for whatever reason, but it was assets like Groningen, uh, it was assets like the, some of those big legacy old North Sea fields and so forth that uh, created a lot of low-cost optionality and drilling fraction to perpetuate these assets to generate sustainable free cash flow that could be invested in other parts of the business ultimately. And, and for certainly for integrated oils, I sometimes maybe gear a lot of these talks a little bit too much to the upstream business, but certainly refining in pet chem uh, may fall within that L, um, the realm of long-live, low-cost, free cash generative assets. We certainly see that with a lot of the leading U.S. independent producers, Valero, PSX, uh, Marathon, all have some uh, terrific downstream businesses. So the ultimate question is, what will be at the low end of the future cost curve? And I've again, it's probably my biggest takeaway from Lee Raymond. Uh, you know, his speech was always, we are not trying to guess where oil prices are going to go. We have a long history of proving we cannot do that. We are trying to figure out what is going to be the low end of the future cost curve and invest all we can in those kind of projects and our production and our growth and all these things. And for that matter, even our dividends and free cash flow will be an outcome of that process of investing in the future low cost resources. Now, Back in Mr. Raymond's era, back in the 1990s and the early 2000s, the general thought process was you're going to have to go international, you're going to have to go to more challenging areas, uh, whether that's the type of resource, um, thinking Venezuela's Orinoco Belt, uh, Arctic was always in that category, elements of Russia, this is a long time ago, keep in mind, um, or uh, more hostile environments. Again, Venezuela, Middle East, Arctic also fits the hostile environment in the super majors, the thought was, uh, they had the assets, the technical technical know-how, the balance sheet, the profitability, the manpower, etc., to crack the code in these areas, and that the host countries needed the help, and that the big companies were ideal partners. 
That was the mindset from 20 and 30 years ago. Now, they, a lot of these companies, including Exxon, missed shale. And, and I'll say this is where people like George Mitchell, uh, people like uh, the management teams of XTO Energy and EOG Resources, et cetera, I think did a really good job of being early pioneers in the shale plays. That is something uh, Exxon missed under Lee Raymond and his successors. At least they weren't early, and, and that's true for all the super majors. That was a miss. They got a lot of things right. Again, Qatar LNG, via the mobile merge is something I would put in the wind bucket. And frankly, a lot of the Middle East and deep water developments, Angola comes to mind, are the types of examples of, hey, it doesn't seem low cost today, but it might be low cost in the future. And they made a lot of good bets along those lines. And as I'm, I've already addressed this point, it's rarely about yesterday's plays, yes, or, or today's plays even. Um, you're trying to extend the life of today's plays, the low-cost, long-life resources you have in hand. Again, maybe they're bolt-on deals. Maybe there's some tier two acreage you can figure out a way to make lower cost. But it's usually about new stuff. Uh, and it's, it's a really important point. So I'll, I'll use a, a current example. There's no question the Permian was sort of the place to be over the last five or 10 years. Different companies had different levels of success, but no doubt. Massive, massive opportunity that people didn't realize existed uh, 15 years ago to the degree they now appreciate. And for those that were early, they made a lot of money and did really, really well. And even some of the late entrants, if they bought at the right time of the cycle, perhaps it will have worked out for you. Um, the idea that the Permian is going to be tomorrow's big surprise, I think, is very unlikely. Now, for the players that are in the Permian, yes, there's going to be a great need to continue to core up acreage. Maybe there's M&A opportunities. Again, maybe there's two-tier or two-tier three acreage that can be come down the cost curve. But the idea that this is going to be tomorrow's play, I, I, I think you're going to need to list elsewhere. So the plays I cited at the beginning of this video, uh, Canada's Oil Sands, Marcellus, Qatar LNG, Permian, these are all plays I absolutely love. And I'm very happy to look at companies that are, that are in those kind of plays. But what is tomorrow's play? And i got to be honest. And sorry to kind of, I'm not sure how we're we four or five minutes into this. I don't know what tomorrow's play is going to be. That's going to be the trick. Um, there's no question we're going to need oil and natural gas resources for a long, long time. We're going to continue to need all the oil and gas we can get out of the plays we know. But this is the trick. And I will say, for the first time in my 30-year career, it is surprising that we are not seeing the itch to explore and to try and figure out what is next. We're not seeing the kind of capital formation through private equity or even public companies to go out and try and crack that code. What that tells you is we're currently not on track by any stretch of the imagination to figure out what is going to be that next great play. Now, maybe uh, we get lucky and a place like Venezuela, which clearly has a massive theoretically low-cost resource, if the fiscal terms are correct, could somehow resolve their self-inflicted geopolitical challenges and open up again. Uh, Brazil kind of has elements, as is Argentina. There's a, the, you know, the unique situation of a trio of South American, and maybe Mexico, we can say four countries in South America, maybe for the first time in my career, and maybe in the age of oil, those countries, or at least one of them can figure it out, but maybe it's somewhere else, but we're not trying today to figure it out.
No one is. And it, it's quite, quite frankly quite shocking. We know OPEC's spare capacity is limited. Even they admit it. We know Russia is not the friendliest country in the world. Who knows how this current turmoil or war goes? Um, but they're likely to be a challenge for the foreseeable future. We know shale is not limitless. We know that for sure. I think there's quite a bit of running room through this decade, uh, but maybe not for multiple decades. And we seem like we know that we're going to be using oil and gas. So when, where will capital formation come? We're not even trying today. I will say this as a counterpoint. For the first time, I've, I've always taken population growth as a given. It is a great thing to have population growth. Um, I did read, um, thanks to Veritin, and I'm a senior advisor there now, their COBT, uh, probably about a couple months ago, they had a guy, Daryl Bricker, who wrote Empty Planet, that talked about how the UN and others are way overstating future population growth, that we've already had a lot of population growth slowdown, a lot of developing economies. I, I, I need to do more work on this. But if you do, for the first time, really have a substantial slowdown in the growth rate of the population, and if you combine that with some of the decarbonization initiatives, and does that put pressure on the rate of long-term demand growth so that it doesn't grow robustly, maybe it levels out, maybe it even rolls over at some point in time, then only in that scenario uh, could perhaps a, a milk it strategy be the viable option, where on my previous point, maybe that's the scenario where you don't need to try and figure out the next big thing. I think, I think you always want to try and figure out what's next, but it would be the scenario of slowing population growth and perhaps some accelerated decarbonization efforts that could suggest a let's milk our core assets for as long as we can approach. Maybe that's Saudi Arabia's approach. That's probably the scenario where that is a viable option. What is the role for new energies? And again, I want to frame this in a, if Lee Raymond was an active CEO today, and again, based on his principles, not necessarily his personality, but based on his principles, how would he look at this? And I'll say this, I think they get a bad rap for not being forward-looking. Frankly, Exxon's been as great as anybody in having a long history of making scientific and engineering breakthroughs. To their credit, a lot of the available, affordable, reliable, refined products, petrochemical products that we all take for granted were ultimately thanks to Exxon and its laboratories and its scientists and its engineers and all the good folks. This is not a video about Exxon per se, but because they are often specifically knocked, and Lee Raymond in particular, of being um, backwards looking. I don't think that's true at all. I think they have a long history of looking forward. Um, and I, I, it's a, I think, a core takeaway from his leadership style that is something we should continue. And I think they'd be looking at all sorts of things today. So what would Lee Raymond do? I think there's no doubt he would be studying a range of different technologies, for sure, in the core oil and gas business. And whether if he had stayed on as CEO, he would have missed shale or not, I, I don't think he was on track to do shale, but that doesn't mean he wouldn't have figured out what the next great either merger or acquisition or resource opportunity was. And I think that would still be the case. But there are, they are scientists. They are engineers. And I think there'd be a lot of work going into, okay, we see this trend of decarbonization. We see this growing societal and government requirement to deal with our emissions. If we're going to be producing oil and gas, let's try and capture it. Let's try and minimize our methane. Uh, let's do all the things we can to be as efficient as possible. That is a real legacy 
of the Lee Raymond years. They get very little credit for this, but their integrated refining petrochemical com uh, complexes really developed and grown under Lee Raymond's tenure were as efficient as any companies anywhere in the world. And I would have no doubt, and it's ironic, the CO2 footprint of those refiners are almost certainly better than a whole bunch of, let's just call it, especially some of their European peers who have glossier green and yellow brochures. I, I don't think there's any question about that. I will say I don't have the data at hand to prove that for sure. There's no doubt in my mind that when it comes to energy efficiency and almost certainly CO2 emissions, I think Exxon's downstream assets, at least during the Lee Raymond era, would have competed very well. So I have no doubt they would be studying a range of technologies. But it still has to be about a business model. The goal isn't to count CO2. It's to provide available, affordable, reliable, secure energy. And from the perspective of a company, profitable energy is going to have to generate returns. I gave the example in my post of Qatar LNG. At the time, it was not obvious that that was going to be a great, low-cost, and profitable resource. That was the vision of Lee Raymond and the management team to say, okay, the Arun LNG field in Indonesia, that's on decline for mobile. We can't look backwards as to what the economics of that field were. Let's try and figure out Qatar. Maybe there are attributes of Qatar that can make that a future low-cost resource. That was their vision. And how do you apply that to any of these new energy technologies? The, the corollary or the related point to this is it is entirely possible that you have an explicit requirement that to produce oil and gas, you have to account for its CO2. And so things like ca carbon capture, CCUS, perhaps even direct air capture, um, I, I would think these would be logical technologies for large oil companies to be evaluating. If they're going to be producing oil and gas, how do you address the emissions you're responsible for? Methane containment, I, I would actually have no doubt um, that I think Lee Raymond would be all over addressing methane. Um, wh wh whether he could have gotten the API to come along is probably not the kind of controversial topic I need to be bringing up when I'm trying to wrap up this video. Uh, but I, I do think methane, carbon capture, clearly things. And I think, you know, whether hydrogen and renewable fuels, I mean, I don't, you know, I, I think there's, there's a lot to be determined. But you study this stuff and you, you, you try and figure out, there's no doubt you'd be doing that. It's about the business model, though. It's not about CO2. It's about energy for all. The last topic I want to talk about is really what might be the what to do now, meaning now and over the next several years. Um, and it's this notion of a cost of capital and scale arbitrage. So there's no question that uh, we have significant anti-fossil fuel policies and sentiment and it's creating a cost of capital arbitrage opportunity. There just isn't new capital formation of any consequence through the scope of public companies, private equity, or so forth. Even though the sector's done well in the last year and a half, uh, you're just not seeing uh, that yet. Energy equities, you can debate the long-term oil price, you can debate a bunch of variables, but they're still being treated as if the returns are unsustainable and the business is going away. And you know what? It may not. So will M&A play a bigger role for large caps? Um, and, you know, it could. Now, if I, gonna, if I go back to the Lee Raymond years, the comment people always make is, it's so well managed, Exxon. 
they should just go buy all those domestic integrateds as they were called at the time. And I think Exxon was very disciplined in saying, yes, our multiple is higher. Um, yes, there may be some things we could do to improve those companies, but we're going to stay disciplined and only focus on best-in-class rocks. So I think there is a case to be made for m and I've talked about it in a different series of notes. But in terms of the what would Lee Raymond do, that's our guiding philosophy here. Um, in a world where there is some uncertainty, perhaps due to population growth, perhaps due to decarbonation trends on long-term demand trajectory, perhaps there is some uncertainty. Um, and you've got some of the challenges of the countries that might have the low-cost resource have political challenges. M&A could be, could be the angle here. Um, you're going to have to remain focused on best-in-class rock, but there likely should and will be um, a cost of capital arbitrage that the S&P leader, the premium company, uh, can take advantage of. The related point I'd say is it's not impossible. It, it may be unlikely. But it's not impossible to have well-conceived climate regulation that likely does help the bigger companies. So I'll just use the methane as an example because I, th I think people understand and it's got a lot of attention. It, it can't be that only a handful of larger E&Ps and integrateds pledge to kind of stop methane flaring and leaks and a whole bunch of smaller companies get a complete pass. There's no logic to that. Why that is allowed is beyond the scope of this video, which is already going to be longer than I intended it to be. Uh, not okay for only sort of half of industry, the larger half, to be pledging to take care of methane, while the other half, the smaller half, gets a free pass. So uh, regulation may, may not be the right term. Ideally, it's self-regulation. What are the principles API others can put forward to ensure everyone gets to play by the same playing field. And then if you have to deal with gas gathering and processing and ensuring you have all the infrastructure in place to the extent you get to what are always better, full cycle economics, not well by well economics, there is a case to be made that that is going to be better done by the bigger companies. doesn't mean we're going to get rid of all the small ones. We won't. There are always niche business models that are far more exciting for smaller companies. But I do think well-conceived, which again, we don't have today. We have anti-fossil fuel, climate-only ideology. That is not well-conceived. I am totally against it, as I think you all know. But you could have well-conceived regulation that does figure out, as you start going through these issues, it is likely that the bigger companies are going to be better positioned to deal with the infrastructure and the compliance cost of that. And I think that is going to start flowing through to some of these companies. So I think you know, what would Lee Raymond do? I have no doubt he would embrace this environment. I'd have no doubt that that guiding principle of we are going to be an S&P leader, we're going to generate superior returns and free cash flow and dividends back to shareholders would absolutely be there. And so going forward, it's going to be a question of understanding the kind of demand environment we're going to have. Maybe it isn't about necessarily exploring for the next resource. It could be this M&A angle. It could tie into actually some of the client, uh, cl climate solutions that are actually out there. So going to stop there. So I'll end this video on a personal note. It is by complete chance that I have now spent 30 years as an energy equity research analyst. My first job out of college was with Petrie Parkman, a boutique oil and gas investment bank in Denver that 
I happened to get that job because the professor recommended me to that firm. I really didn't even know what EMP meant at the time. I'd obviously heard about the oil business, got, had to fill my car with gasoline. And I remember the uh, in, initial Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. But beyond that, um, I'm really lucky. It's a global business. I thought early in my career how interesting it was that what would matter for Texas oil and gas companies would be economic development in China. How crazy is that? That was one of the most impactful developments for any U.S. company. Now we're on the other side of that where what happens in the Permian Basin matters to people in the rest of the world in terms of, in terms of oil prices. But it's always been a critically important business. And I do think that aspect of it has been completely forgotten. It's been overtaken by what is uh, generally referred to as the climate agenda. Um, for sure, this business has negative externalities, uh, including some environmental harms, some harms to the climate that need to be addressed. But it is a critically important business. And I would encourage anyone that has the opportunity, it's a really fun business to get involved in. There is nothing more important than providing available oil, gas, and other energy forms to people of the world. Believe it or not, there are somewhere between one to three billion of us on Earth that don't have the benefits of modern energy, and that is not okay. So if you can be an equity research analyst, if you can go into the business, it is a phenomenal business to be in. And it is a business that is going to have to be part of the solution. Companies are gonna have to figure out how to deal with their methane, and their scope one and scope two emissions. And there certainly might be some logical adjacent new energy technologies that might make sense for some oil and gas companies. But whether they get into that or not, this is an absolutely critical resource that somehow the world has forgotten that it's need that it needs. And it is being reminded in a very painful way that you can't take it for granted. You shouldn't take it for granted. I am the lucky one to have been involved with this sector again, as a Wall Street analyst for all these years. If you have a chance, if you're new to your career, it's a really, really fun sector to cover, and I would give it my highest recommendation. Thank you.